This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, we're here in the middle of April, and yet we're just now getting to our Oscar discussion. The Oscars are in a couple of weeks. I'm really disoriented right now. I don't know which way is up. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like something happened last year, Kevin, but I can't quite put my finger on it. I am trying my best not to put my finger on it. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, today we conclude our discussion of the Best Picture nominees with a review of Promising Young Woman from writer and director Emerald Fennell. We're also going to be providing our uh, little overview of the Oscar ceremony themselves, what what picks we liked, which ones we didn't, and which ones we maybe predict are going to take home the statue on the big night. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 287 of Seeing and Believing. You know, I actually wanted to meet you today to talk about something in particular. I did wonder. No one's heard from me in like forever. (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about why I dropped out. Okay, sure. You remember what happened, right? Oh, such a long time ago now. I know, but you remember. I mean, vaguely. Do you ever think about it? Why would I? Right, why would you? So if a friend came to you now, came to your house and told you that they thought something bad had happened to them the night before. Cassie. Something bad. It was years ago. What would you say? What would you say? Yes, listeners, this is episode 287 of Seeing and Believing. We're going to talk about our Academy Award picks a little bit later on in the show. I don't know if they're picks. I don't know if I have picks, but I definitely do have nominees that I hope will win. And then a lot of nominees that I hope don't win, Kevin. And it seems to be there seems to be a trend that happens every year. (laughs) I've long since learned not to try to, you know, play any Oscar pools because I'm usually wrong with with my predictions. I don't usually do that well. And with the year that 2020 was and there being kind of a lot of Dark Horse nominees this time around, it seems like it's even more of a toss up than usual. So I'm, I'm staying mm. far away from making any, any prognostications. <laughs> I, I might play the game where I do I do predict the films and then kind of tally up my score. And what I usually do is I'll print it out and I'll say which one I hope will win and which one I think will win. And usually those two are different. Um, But at least I can put down the ones that I hope will win. And that makes me feel better about myself. (laughs) 
<laughs> probably makes you feel better about some of the terrible uh, thing, terrible choices that the Academy eventually makes when they actually hand out the awards, too. So there's that silver lining as oh, well. Oh, man. Look at us being in a couple of grumps today. Uh, that's episode 287. <laughs> Just us complaining about the Academy Awards. Well, I mean, a- <laughs> what, what are the Oscars if we don't complain about it? Right? Yeah, That's yeah. what they're for. No, no, it, it is. So in a little over a week, the 93rd Academy Awards ceremony, it does take place. Feels a little weird that it's happening in April. And Kevin, we are gearing up by closing out our discussion of the Best Picture nominees over the course of the year. We've talked in some form about every film in that category save one. Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman. We rectify that today. Now, I, I do want to note that listeners should be aware that the subject matter of this film does deal with issues of sexual assault, and it might be disturbing and a little bit difficult for some viewers. So I'm just going to put that out there in case there are any young ears in the audience. Here is the film's official synopsis. Everyone said Cassie, played by Carrie Mulligan, was a promising young woman until a mysterious event abruptly derailed her career. But nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. By night, Cassie performs a ritual of her own invention, going to bars and dance clubs alone in the wee hours. She pretends to be dangerously intoxicated, helpless to defend herself from anyone who might wish her harm. Inevitably, there's a man who decides to make sure she gets home safely, yet he also inevitably lets his own desires take priority over Cassie's well-being, not realizing that he's simply the latest to fall prey to Cassie's nefarious schemes. He's about to be taught a lesson he's unlikely to forget anytime soon. Eventually, an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs of the past, as she's pulled back toward her own traumatic experiences that forever changed the course of her life. The film also stars Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Connie Britton, and Adam Brody. It's written and directed by Emerald Fennell. Kevin, given the subject matter of Promising Young Woman, the movie could not come at a more important time. As we begin our discussion of the film, I'd like to first pose this question to you. Just what do you make of how the movie uses its distinct, loud style to tell this story? Do you think it's effective or, in the end, ultimately distracting to the subject matter? I mean, the the style, I, I'm assuming the, the kind of candy-colored uh, visuals and the... Uh, the uh, pop inflected soundtrack like the you you get Britney Spears you get Paris Hilton you get a lot of uh, what's popularly or at least used to popularly be called bubblegum pop and that's kind of this whole aesthetic that Fennel uses to act as a counterpoint to the essential darkness of the story this is more or less uh, a rape revenge thriller right this is a uh, kind of in, in some ways, an answer to the often male-directed movies where a a uh, a woman is uh, the victim of sexual violence in some way, and she spends the entire movie kind of uh, 
taking back some of some of the power by inflicting violence upon the people who first violated her. And they're often extremely violent, extremely explicit, and aren't typically movies that I want to be watching. There's just not very much about them that I really want to be putting into my head. And so it's interesting to see this kind of aesthetic uh, applied to similar subject matter. And it's also interesting to see the places that Fennel takes it that uh, uh, stand in some ways in stark contrast to those other films. So I, I think that the aesthetic is interesting and works as far as it goes. I think... I don't, I'm not a huge fan of this film, and it's less to do with the film's visuals or the directorial choices, and mostly to do with the script. I can imagine a movie like this, it's an interesting idea, and I can imagine there being a version of this idea being put on screen that I would like a lot better, but I just think that the screenplay here is so broad that I... I don't think it ends up working in the end for me. Mm. Uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, though. Yeah, I think I think the script is the weakest aspect of the film, and I think that final the final act of the movie is what does the film in for me, and I, I think that it I wouldn't say pulls its punches. I'm just not really sure where it's intending to go, and. When it does land there, I, I felt I felt like the story was a little bit incomplete. Um, so I do agree with you there. I think the aesthetic and the style of the movie says something about just the entire issue. And you mentioned Britney Spears. There's this real big scene and a, a an orchestra rendition of Britney Spears's song Toxic is playing in the background and it's seeming to suggest that even this what you call bubblegum aesthetic is a product of of this culture that devalues women and to see that aesthetic kind of flipped a bit I, I think works now like I mentioned I, I think the script doesn't fully subvert those ideas. And I wouldn't say that this film in the end is, is almost too different than this subgenre that you described earlier. Uh, it's less violent. It's less explicit, but I'm not sure the ideas of, of vigilante violence and sexual assault are kind of played out like they could be. Now, at the same time, this issue really is uh, important to the movie. It's It wears its heart on its sleeve about the entire Me Too movement. And so it does have, I think, a message worth hearing. Uh, I just, yeah, like you said, I, I would have liked to see the story go in some different places or at least be refined a bit more. Yeah, I think refined... It's interesting because this is not a film that's not – it's not trying to be refined. Like it, it's not – it. Fennel, as both a writer and director, doesn't particularly care about coddling her audience's sensibilities. She doesn't particularly care about whether or not she's um, 
playing by certain rules or or not being transgressive. There there are a few points of this movie that that are genuinely transgressive or at least kind of don't go down a more conventional road that you might expect. And I think that that uh, that's an approach that deserves some credit. For me, though, it's it's less that I, I just I, I don't think that it's well observed enough for its punches to really land. It fe- it's got that that anger bubbling underneath it, but it feels kind of like it's angry at a cartoon version of the issues that it's trying to address. And by by that I mean the the uh, the male characters in this film who are the targets of Cassie's uh, plans. It's not enough for them to just be bad. They have to be almost like caricatures. And I don't know that the film is well served by that. Not because I think that the these characters are, are deserving of more compassion from the audience. It's more that they just aren't really recognizable as anything except two-dimensional cardboard stand-ups of villains. And I think that for especially the twists that come at the end of this movie to really have the gut punch feel that Fennel's going for, you really have to see these these abusers as people, not just as as monsters or as cartoons, but as scarily real men uh, who have very real world analogs. And that doesn't really hold true for me. There's, you know, this the men in this film, they don't seem particularly recognizable as people. They they more they seem almost like buffoons or uh or again, I, I just come back to the word cartoons, and I just don't I, I think it's easy to have them as boo hiss villains, but I think that Fennel really wants us to confront the fact that self-proclaimed nice guys really aren't that nice. And I guess I would have found that more compelling if the men that she had put on screen actually resembled some of the men like that that I know in real life. And to not be brought to that point of confrontation with this film, I kind of I wonder if that's a a flaw with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should point out too that the casting is very deliberate in this film, and that a number of the individuals who uh, transgress in this film are characters who play uh, the nice guy or the the dork in other films and television shows. And so I mentioned Adam Brody. Uh, you also have uh, Mick Lovin, who's in this movie. Uh, <laughs> Christopher Mintz-Plass. <laughs> yes, he, he's he's here. Uh, you have a couple of the quote-unquote good guys from the Verma- Veronica Mars uh, series. One of them includes uh, Max Greenfield and, uh, and then Chris Lowell. And so... There's something that's said about, okay, these guys on the outside, they seem like like everything is fine, um, but they're corrupted from the inside. And I appreciated that casting, but there are some choices, like you said, at the end, which kind of throws a lot of that out the window. And I think it 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 makes it makes the film easier 
right? So, so if someone is not just someone who made a mistake once or twice, but is just an absolute villain, then it just makes the whole story a little bit easier. And I'm not sure if that's the best place to go. There are some creative ways I think the movie uses uh, the acts of the film. And so there's, you know, part one, part two, and I'm thinking, okay, we're going to end with part three. It's going to be act three of the movie. But part three comes in the middle of the film when things seem to be resolved. And then four and five take the story even deeper. And I think that's a creative element here. I also like some of the compositions during a large portion of the film, uh, the camera will actually frame actors with a large amount of headspace. And at one point, um, there's this, this I was almost startling, it's, it's a tension grabbing shot uh, of a woman in power uh, who has been uh, perpetuating um, this, uh, this behavior towards women. And above her is this uh, painting of an old white gentleman and he's he's above her but most of the time these characters are framed with a lot of headspace there's this kind of crushing burden on a lot of these individuals with the exception of some of the of the villains they don't seem to live with a lot of that burden with a lot of that that headspace and i think that's kind of a fascinating choice and i appreciate a number of those compositions to further kind of reinforce the the pushiness uh the style of this film and the message it's trying to tell yeah fennel uh she knows how to frame a shot for sure i like how she often frames cassie uh you know dead center in the frame of you know almost meticulous. It, it kind of feels a lot like a, a Wes Anderson shot where everything is arranged just so. Uh, often the uh, the scenery behind her in the background is, is very, very meticulous. The, she works at a coffee shop where there's kind of this, this blue wall decoration in the background and Fennel frames Cassie directly in front of that. So it almost looks like she's uh, painted on like a painted figurine on a teacup or something. It's very, uh, it's a very delicate uh, kind of mise en scène used throughout this film. Uh, like there, uh, the kind of very uh, ornate surroundings at her uh, childhood home. She still lives with her parents, and her parents kind of live in this very um, almost over the top decoration. You know, there's baby, there's this giant baby portrait on the wall. There are these chandeliers hanging down, and. Fennel uses those things to suggest how um, Cassie is all too happy to place herself kind of in that environment because her whole uh, mode of operation involves uh, playing on uh, how men underestimate her and try to take advantage of her because they, in their minds, she's something very delicate herself, something that some, something, someone who is not a someone, someone who's a thing who can just be kind of arranged just so used and then discarded. And Fennel's ability to suggest that through the, the visuals is, um, is really nice. And it's part of why I kind of wish that, like you were saying earlier, the screenplay had been refined a little bit more because I think that Fennel has the directorial chops to tell this kind of story. I just don't think that the particulars of the script really feel 
all that well considered. And that just that doesn't go just for the portraits of the abusers. I just think the um the way some of the the dialogue is written, it feels kind of almost sitcom-y. The the dialogue between Cassie and Bo Burnham's character, Ryan, they kind of have this meet cute and this romance that is a subplot and acts again as a as a counterpoint to the revenge plot that it it's it's fun, but it feels a little bit canned, I guess. And I, I just I wish that the writing were on par with the directing because that gulf just became easier and easier to see as the film went on and ended up making me feel like I'd watch something very very visually well considered, but a little bit half baked conceptually. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of these performances, I think, are really good. I love the chemistry between Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham. And I like Bo Burnham a lot. I think he directed one of the best films of the decade. I think I had it like number 10 or 11 or something like that, eighth grade. And I think he's a fantastic actor. I think he's really funny. Carrie Mulligan, I mean, we've talked about her a lot. She's fantastic. And I loved a lot of their scenes together. And it made me wish that they were just in a straightforward rom-com. Like, can we just put them two in a straightforward rom-com? And I'd, I'd watch, you know, I'd watch that. I'd, I'd, I'd love, I'd eat that up. Um, there are some really great scenes between them. And so we get a lot of, I feel like this film uh, has so many fantastic qualities. Uh, so, you know, don't get me wrong when I talk about the script, but there are a lot of, I think, great moments. Um, the film is... It, you know, it's a black comedy. It, it's I feel like it's it's pretty humorous in scenes. It's pretty intense. Uh, I was actually on the edge of my seat in many scenes. So there is this quality of uh, within the movie of producing this just emotion, this sort of raw kind of emotion or power or anger or frustration. And so in that sense, I think the film does succeed because it does make you feel those things. And um, one of the more one of the more gripping watches that I've had, you know, in the probably in, in the past you know, recent months. I, I keep coming back to the the feeling, what, the word I used at the beginning of this review, which was which was broad. I, I think that this is a movie that, in a lot of ways, is pitched very broadly, and it made me feel like the the more gripping parts. I felt a little bit. It just felt a little bit tidy. Uh, in, in the ways they kind of set up these plot dynamics only to to knock them down. It just, I, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Kitty Green's The Assistant, which I had on my top 10 of 2020, and just how subtly it, it also evoked some of the same themes of, of men abusing their power, of sexual assault, of how uh, young women, especially young women, kind of find themselves caught up in the gears of a system that really is only interested in exploiting them and does not want to listen to what they have to say. And I I remember the the anxiety I felt watching the assistant, the scene with uh Matthew McFadden's um uh HR representative where it's very blasé and yet the sinister qualities of that scene came out and that's kind of the the sharpness of observation that I was looking for and missing in Promising Young Woman. The 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 anger 
is very well earned, obviously, but it doesn't feel like it, it feels like it's it's anger directed towards almost an abstraction rather than anger directed towards more concrete ob, uh, observed phenomenon that are experienced in the world every day. And I feel like that's something that the assistant was able to evoke for me and was much more gripping for that. Whereas promising no woman felt like it's maybe a little, it's maybe cathartic to watch in the moment, but it's not really a film that I'm, I'm particularly interested in revisiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. And I, I think, Probably the last thing I'll I'll say about this movie here in the podcast is is some of these themes and ideas and I started noticing this trend in in some films some very thoughtful films uh, since it follows and it's the idea of of how how powerful sex is and I you almost sense this moving toward a more conservative approach of consensual or not sex impacts us in deep ways and it is it is powerful and we see we we, we see that in it follows right um this idea that s- sex passes something down to each individual and it kind of floats above this scene as well and the way that sex is used to uh, hurt and devalue individuals and it 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 pushes me and it, it reminds me of just of the protection of, of sex within that, you know, marital relationship. And, and maybe I'm kind of going farther than the film itself is going, but it definitely brings forth these ideas um, that the sexual revolution in the 60s didn't get it right. And we're still wrestling with this question. And it's a big question. And uh, a movie like this, talks about some of the issues that we're, we're, we're trying to work through and, and the trauma that's been invoked over the, over the centuries. So uh, definitely a lot to think about uh, you know, with this movie. Hmm. Well, interesting thoughts for sure. And definitely a film that has been encouraging a lot of discussion. I've seen lots of people talking about this film. Uh, so I was looking forward to seeing it and was glad to have a chance to discuss it on the podcast. Uh, even if, you know, ultimately I ended up uh, in on kind of like a, a naysayer role with, with the film as a whole. I'm curious to know what our listeners thought as well. Listeners, if you've had a chance to catch up with Promising Young Woman in advance of the Oscars and you have thoughts about it and thoughts about uh, what Wade and I have had to say about uh, on the show today, definitely let us know. We're curious to hear uh, what you think of it. You can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a faith strong enough to hold us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. 
But for now, maybe that's a, a good way to transition from this particular Oscar-nominated film into a discussion of the the Oscar nominations at large, Wade. Like you said, the ceremony at long last is around the corner. It got delayed, obviously, for for pretty good reasons, uh, but it's finally here, and there is a lot to talk about. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious to know. We've we've kind of touched a few things related to the nominations since they were announced. I know that you said that you were pretty pleased overall with the quality of the Best Picture nominees. So maybe we'll start there and run down the uh, the list of nominations for Best Picture. We've got The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minotti, Nomad, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's the slate that we're working with. And yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that field, Wade, since you, uh, you know, we're pretty positive on it overall. What do you, which ones do you like? Which ones do you dislike? And uh, which ones do you hope will uh, be recognized on the night? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, I think the, the only film that I kind of just dislike from that list is Mank. And I've, I've disliked it more and more as time has, has passed by. We just reviewed, Ooh. you know, Promising Young Woman. And so uh, you know, that one, I, I think there's a lot to commend about it. Not surprised that it is here. And all the others that they could really get. I mean, Nomad Land is my favorite movie of, of 2020. And Sound of Metal, I think, was, was number three. And Minari was on my top 10. So I would love to see uh, those films win it out. I, I I wouldn't have a problem with any of those. And, and also Judas and the Black Messiah, The Father, all good films that we could recommend uh, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to review Mank uh, when it came out on the show. I think that was... Uh, some of you had you had a guest on to help you talk about that because that was uh, during during my uh, sabbatical uh, because of a certain baby. So, uh, but I did have a chance to catch up with it, and I'm I'm with you. It's it's not surprising, I guess, that it got nominated since it's a <laughs> yeah. black and white movie about the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone knew that that was going to get a nomination pretty much from the time it was announced. Um, but it, it's disappointing to me, I guess, that it's gotten as much attention as it has. Because I'm with you, Wade. I was really underwhelmed with Mank, and so I'm very much rooting against it for the ceremony. I'm really looking forward to a a an awards night where Minardi takes it home. Like I just I think that's a, a great movie, and it would just be so nice to see something. You know that small and understated win out is over the more flashy stuff like Mank and the Trial of the Chicago Seven, which, and eh, just not not all that exciting. I don't. I I would also accept Sound of Metal. I guess if 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 I can't have exactly what I want, Sound of Metal would also be a very very fine choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, I, I I'm pretty pleased. I feel like most of the time they're just like half of the movies are movies I just don't enjoy and so um i i think the slate is is pretty good let's move on to some performances uh i think i think the the nominations here are are pretty good in a lot of these roles so for actress in a leading role we have viola davis in ma rainey's black bottom 
uh, Andra Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Have not seen that movie. Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman. Frances McDormand in Nomadland, and then Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Uh, Kevin, what do you what do you think about that? What do you think about that batch of nominees? Uh, you know, th- this is actually a, a category that I, I'm a little shamefaced about because I haven't seen two of the five films that have uh, actresses nominated for. I have not gotten a chance to catch up with the United States versus Billy Holiday or Pieces of a Woman, so I can't really comment on Andra Day or Vanessa Kirby. Uh, I'm a fan of Kirby. I think she's a, a tremendous actress, and I'm certainly interested to see Pieces of a Woman. Of the three that I have seen, I really like Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I think that that's a it's a performance that could have just been really big and, and full of, I don't know, I can see a version of of that film having Ma Rainey herself, who who is you know that's who Davis plays. I can see a version of that where Ma Rainey is just this big bombastic role, and just the actor in that role just chewing up the scenery. Davis doesn't. She actually kind of, in a lot of ways, underplays Ma Rainey, and I think that that's it makes it a very interesting role to watch. So. I that's probably my pick of the ones that I've seen, and it would be hard for me to see how Day and Kirby would top that one. But uh, you know, uh, I'm open to to an upset once I do get mm. a chance to catch up with those two films. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Davis probably has one of the best performances here. The the other one would be uh, Frances McDormand, and I, I think she just carries Nomadland. And so yeah, those those were. Really good performances. Uh, now, in uh, Best Actor in the Leading Role, we have Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins, The Father, Gary Oldman in Mank, and Stephen Yen in Minari. Take out Gary Oldman, and we've got a really good... <laughs> <laughs> we've got a really good batch here, and I... It's it's difficult to choose one over the other. They're all so good. Oh man, I words almost can't express how bitter I am that Gary Oldman is in this <laughs> category. I think it's I, I don't think Mank is a very good movie, but I think Oldman is actually pretty bad in it. I don't think he he gives a very interesting performance. And I think the the way that he plays Mank is it, it's it's a lot of very broad sort of actor playing uh, playing tipsy sort of role. And I just I think it's kind of a shockingly bad performance if I'm being perfectly honest. And I'll be honest here, it might be because I really, really wanted Delroy Lindo to get some recognition at long last for his one uh, just incredible performance in De Five Bloods by Spike Lee. I I I don't can't remember if I've actually said this on the podcast, but I think Lindo's performance is the performance of the year. I just I don't think anybody else comes close to touching him. He, it just seems not just that it's technically a great performance, just in terms of what he's doing as an actor with his with with everything, but I just think in terms of the way it's written and the way that he taps into these really interesting contradictions in the character of Paul, this this African-American man who's a diehard Trump supporter, and the way that that 
interacts with other aspects of his identity and his history. I, I just think is spellbinding, and I desperately wish he were in this. Since I can't have that, though, I really do also like Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He's also pretty astounding. Riz Ahmed in any other year would probably be my pick. He just he had the bad luck of a really strong competition mm. in 2020. I guess I thought that Chadwick Boseman would be in supporting role when I saw the film. Uh, he is in leading role, and, and I could I mean I could see that too. Um, I think he's the one to beat. I think his performance is fantastic. And I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the show, but he he gives this speech where he essentially curses God for all of the all the things that have happened in his life. And it is uh, it is I mean, it's a speech and just, you know, he passed away this year. I think I think he'll, he'll win and uh deservedly so this won't be just an award they give him because he did pass away like he does deserve this i like riz ahmed a lot and like you said any other year um he would be at the top and steven yen too um but i think bozeman is definitely the person to beat so i'm I'm thinking through there's a lot of categories i guess we could go through we probably should at least talk about best director because that uh that's an important category, and it's one that I'm always interested in uh, just talking through and, and thinking through. And I'm going to go through the the nominees right now. We have Thomas Vinterberg, who directed Another Round. I haven't seen that film, Kevin, but I know you have, and you liked it a lot. Uh, <laughs> David Fincher make... I, I like David Fincher a lot, but I'm in this place now where every time I see his name... I'm just not happy. And that's a weird thing because any other year I'd be like, yes, yes. And I think, you know, Social Network should have won Best Picture the year it was produced. Uh, you got Lee Isaac uh, Chung for Minari, uh, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, my favorite film of the year, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Promising Young Woman by Emerald uh, Fennell. I, you know, it's got to be for me Nomadland. I would also be really, really, really excited if Lee Isaac Chung won. That would be amazing. So just pulling for one of those two films. Yeah, I, I, if I had to make a prediction, I, I would say that the statue is Chloe Zhao's to lose. Like, hmm. I think she's the pretty clearly the front runner. Um, Nomadland has really um gotten a lot of appreciation um and i think that i I like her as a director i'm not sure that i I kind of feel like her winning for nomad land is kind of like martin scorsese winning for the departed it's Hmm. a fine movie Hmm. it's maybe not her best or it's i would argue that's definitely not her best um i'm all in on lee isaac chung from minati i just think that it's a tremendous film uh his directing in it is tremendous and i would be very pumped if he won i i share your thoughts on david fincher uh emerald fennel you know i i spent the entire first half of this episode kind of bad mouthing promising young woman but i actually i do think that the directing in it is um is interesting so she i I wouldn't be sad if she or thomas vinterberg won as well just as just as long as fincher uh kind of gets his gets his wrist slapped for turning in me you know (laughs) oh i guess this this man this is turning into the david fincher hate hour i i i don't know that we intended it that way but you know that's just 
the way the the wind is blowing. Oh tonight. man! <laughs> well, it's hard because you know we did our we did our uh, I, I don't know how many films it was eleven or we did our countdown our our favorite David Fincher films earlier in the summer. And I talked about hey I I like him a lot. I was very interested in Mank, very excited uh, about Mank, and just you know completely let down so um but no i still i still love you fincher and we're hoping we're hoping good things in your future uh kevin are there any other categories that we want to discuss before before closing this shop up uh you know uh, i did want to give a, a call out for best supporting actor um i i think that that's also a pretty strong category uh you know, give or take a Sacha Baron Cohen, which which is sort of the uh, he's the David Fincher of this category. Oh, I, no. I don't really know what he's doing in in there. I it's a little bit like the the Gary Oldman uh, role in actor. I just don't I don't think it's a very good performance. But I'd say other than that, though, this is a really strong slate. I'm leaning towards Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. I think it's I I, I had a lot of great things to say for Stanfield in that uh film when we reviewed it on the show and i think he's just really great as for whether he'll win i'm not sure this is this is an interesting category which is why i brought it up wade i'm curious to know your thoughts because i could really see uh, i i don't know that leslie odom jr for one night in miami is going to win but i could see any of the other four taking it home it's it's pretty there there's some stiff competition in this category yeah yeah there there is and um uh, my pick is and i hope i'm pronouncing this right paul uh racy he is uh of course the supporting actor in sound of metal i think he's so good and i i i did a podcast where with Screenfish and Steve Norton, where I, we counted down our favorite scenes of the year, 2020. And his scene with Riz Ahmed, where they eventually part ways, is my favorite of the year. And he talks about the kingdom of God. And I mean, there's just, and, and it, it's, it surprised me. And I think whenever I was looking at the list, I saw his name. He was one of the first nominations that I saw when the nominations were released. And it was just like, oh man, like this is, this like things are going really well this year for him to be on this list. I just didn't expect it. And so I would just absolutely love for him to win. I, it is weird with Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield being on here for the same movie. And it's just like, how do you, how do you choose? And I think, I think Stanfield should, yeah, he should be in um, lead role. I think he should. And so because of that, I think Daniel Kaluuya will win this. I think he will win this one. Um, but man, Paul Racy, I would just, I would love for him to take this. <laughs> that, that's that's a gutsy pick because I could see it going either way. Judas and the Black Messiah with two nominees in the same category might end up splitting the vote. Yes. And then yeah. you know, you, Paul might actually be able to you know, walk up that, that split vote and uh, get to the awards podium on the night uh, just because of that. But I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. I'll actually – I don't know if I'll actually end up watching the Oscars live – but I will be very interested to see who wins out in this mm -hmm. particular category. Mm -hmm. I, I I try I try to watch it live. I, it's usually a lot of fun. Uh, it does go on for too long, but 
I'm hoping this year things will be a little more succinct. I don't know how they're going to do it. I assume it'll be uh, people kind of uh, video conferencing in because that's that's what the Golden Globes did. So I don't I don't know that 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 has an opportunity to be kind of fun and to be kind of different and perhaps take out all of those weird jokes and skits that are not funny and just focus on the awards. Um, so so we'll see, listeners. That is coming to you uh, April 25th, 2021, the 93rd Academy Awards. Let us know your favorite movies of the year, your favorite picks. We'd love to hear those. And I don't know, maybe we should even start this little game where we send in our picks and then we see who got it right. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, But for now, that is the end of our episode. Once again, reach out to us on Twitter at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod. If you have comments about the show, you can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by christandpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.